Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 11, Death and Astronomy. It is now January 1637, and the new year begins with a funeral for the Persian man who drank himself to death at the welcome party for our ambassadors in the town of Shimaki. Adam Wallarius tells us he will provide more details about Persian burial ceremonies later in the book. But he waits until the very end of Book 6 to do that, and we are still in Book 5. So I'm going to skip ahead. The Persians inter their dead within three hours after the soul has gone out of the body, he writes, unless it be nighttime. They wash the bodies before they are buried. For persons of quality, the ceremony is conducted in their homes, and for common people in a place at a mosque, built for that purpose. Olarius observes the ceremony in the city of Kaswin during the trip home. The body of a young man, about twenty years of age and not yet cold, is carried in his clothes to the mosque. He is stripped naked and cast into a cistern of water about sixteen feet square. The gravedigger washes the body, puts a clean shirt on him, and wraps him in a shroud of cotton. He is then laid on a bier, a movable wooden frame, and carried to the grave, which is not far away. Persons of quality, a phrase which, as you know, Olarius uses frequently and still applies to certain people in our own modern society, are treated to a more luxurious version of the ceremony. In addition to the washing, the body is set upright and camphor water, which has antiseptic, antifungal, and other mystical properties, is poured upon the head, where it runs down the entire body and is mopped up with a cotton cloth. A modern explanation from the Iran Chamber Society confirms what Olarius says, with a few exceptions. The person who performs the washing should be a Muslim and from the same sex as the deceased. Sometimes close relatives or friends may undertake the washing themselves, but this is not very common. In the past, the dead could be washed at home, but most Iranians today go to the designated places and in major cities, such acts are banned for health concerns. If washed at home, this took place outdoors in an enclosure set up for the occasion to protect the body from being seen. With the dead females, the body was washed in an enclosure, covered on every side including the top, so that the female's naked body was not exposed to even sun or sky. The body is laid near the grave. The imam reads some passages of the Quran, raises up the head of the deceased, lets it down again, and then puts the body into the grave without a coffin. The graves are of varying sizes, but the body is always laid down on its right side with the face towards the west, because the Persians are persuaded that, among other things, at the last judgment the sun and moon shall be very sad, and that the sun coming to the west shall stand still, and that both those planets shall become black as coal. And then the angel Gabriel will come and beat the sun and moon, forcing them to return to the east, and that the last judgment shall begin at the west. The imam picks up some dirt, reads another passage of the Quran, and walks seven paces from the grave. At this moment, two angels go into the grave, and the soul returns to the dead body. The person then gives the angels an account of what they have done in the world, and answers several questions. First, in whom does the dead person believe? 
And the answer is the one and only God, my heavenly Father. Second, who was your prophet? The answer is Muhammad. And third, who was your imam? The answer is Ali. If the dead gives the right answers, he is saved, and the angels seize the soul and separate it from the body. But children are not obliged to answer. After all this has occurred, the imam walks back to the grave, reads another passage, and leaves with the mourners. Hilarious notes that persons of quality frequently have a feast on the third day after the burial, but without any wine. And if the deceased has left much wealth behind, then more feasting is scheduled for the seventh day, the fortieth day, and also on various holidays when alms are distributed to the poor. The burials of great lords and persons of quality are performed with great pomp, and the body is accompanied by great processions, Olarius tells us. In the fifth book of this relation, we made mention of a gentleman of Shimaki who had drunk so much akavite that he died of it the next day. The ceremonies of his interment were as follows. In the first place, in the head of the procession, there marched six men carrying banners on long poles, much like those we had seen at our entrance into the city. Next marched four horses, the first of which carried bows and arrows of the deceased, and the other three some of his clothing. After these, one of the menial servants, mounted on an excellent mule, carried his turban. This man was followed by two men, carrying certain towers on their heads, adorned with great plumes of feathers, who danced and leaped to the sound of music, which came after them, and consisted of tambourines and copper cymbals. Between the musicians and dancers, eight dishes of sugar cakes and preserves were carried, each covered with blue paper, which is the color of mourning. Around each cake were lit three wax candles. Next marched certain members of the mystical Sufis, who were distinguished from others by their white turbans. Then followed two bands of musicians, singing the Allah Akbar with all their might, and distorting their bodies with various countenances and postures. After them followed three young boys, having their right shoulder and arm naked, and their foreheads and arms scratched, so that blood trickled down to the ground. Lastly, there followed three men, each carrying a tree fixed with tresses of hair belonging to the gentleman's three wives, red apples, and pieces of red and green paper. These went immediately before the body, which was carried by eight men upon their shoulders, and upon the bier there was a very fair garment lined with precious skins of sheep. Behind these followed four men, carrying, in a very high chair, a young lad who read passages from the Quran. At the end of the procession came relations and friends of the deceased, who went along with the body to a certain place of the city, where it was to remain until it could be transferred to Baghdad, to be buried near their imams. It is now January 2, 1637, we are back in Book 5, and the governor and his lieutenant visit the ambassadors with gifts of food and drink. The governor wants to hear some German music, of which he has heard much talk, and invites them back to his castle, along with several musicians and their instruments, a violin, a bass viol, a bandor, and a singer. A dictionary of old English music from 1817 says the bandor is also known as a pandora, 
a plucked instrument strung with wire and used to supply a bass. Like the lute, the Pandora had its strings mounted in unison pairs or ranks. The instrument is mentioned as early as 1566, and the dictionary says it must have been capable of producing very artistic effects. Our ambassadors attempt to dissuade the governor, but fail, and so they pass the remainder of the day in his company. At some point, the governor orders a gentleman of his chamber to fetch three of his best horses, and to ride them around the room where they are listening to music, even though the floor is covered with very rich tapestry. A few days later, the governor sends word that he will be attending an Armenian religious ceremony called the Baptism of the Cross, and that the ambassadors are welcome. It is conducted somewhere outside the city near a bridge across a river. The Armenians, Muscovites, and some other Christians celebrate this feast day on the 6th of January, which is the day of the Epiphany, or the appearance of the Star of Bethlehem to the three wise men. It begins with a Mass on the day before, followed by a sermon, in much the same manner as the Roman Catholics do it in Europe. The bishop approaches the Germans after the sermon, saying he is honored by their devotions and that he would like to speak with them sometime later. He indicates that he would like their help in convincing the governor to allow a building of a Christian church in the city. The ambassadors agree. Olarius says they infer from this conversation that the bishop is a missionary from Pope Urban VIII, sent to Persia to encourage the reunion of the Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. About noon, the Armenians bring fifteen horses, and they ride a few miles to the river for the ceremony. Poor Christians from all the nearby villages come, carrying images, crosses, and banners, and soldiers assigned by the governor protect them, against the injuries and affronts of the Muslims, who make it their sport to abuse them. After everyone arrives, the governor commands the Armenians to begin. As soon as the reading starts, four stark naked men leap into the water and swim up and down to break the ice on the river. A water spaniel brought along by the Germans leaps in after them. This is the first mention that dogs have accompanied the ambassadors, but it makes sense. The Persians find this to be what Olarius calls excellent sport. They will not willingly touch a dog themselves, it being unclean, but they laugh heartily when the ceremony of the Armenians is profaned by the water dog. The governor does not join in the laughter. Instead, he takes pains to protect the ceremony because, as Olarius says, the Armenians pay him a thousand crowns in annual taxes. The bishop reads for an hour or more, the assembly sings and plays music, consecrated oil is poured into the river, and a cross set with precious stones is used to give the benediction. All the Armenians drink the river water, and some wash their faces while others cast their bodies into it. Some of the governor's servants are rude to the Armenian priests and women. Valerius writes that the governor himself is ashamed, and so commands them to stop, although he also orders his jester to dance around the bishop, in the way one presumes that jesters usually dance. The governor's physician is an Arab who claims to be of no faith and asks the ambassadors if they believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. They answer that they do believe it and that the question itself is uncivil, but they did not come to Persia to argue religion. When the ceremony ends, everyone falls to serious drinking. The governor gets drunk, gets on his horse, and rides off, taking leave of no one. All the Persians follow him. This surprises the Germans who are not familiar with the custom. 
They discover sometime later that the Persians think nothing of leaving when they are tired of the company, and that they see many instances of the custom, sometimes even at the Shah's own table. On January 9, the Armenian bishop visits the ambassadors, and they spend more than three hours discussing the business of their religion and the building of a Christian church in Shimaki. About a week later, the ambassadors send Olarius and two others with presents for the governor, including all sorts of alcohol and two pairs of amber-handled knives. He likes the presents, and so they ask him what he thinks of the Armenian petition to build a church. The governor says that Islam forbids any new Christian buildings, that the Christians have never been permitted to build a church in Shimaki, and that it had never been his intention to allow them to build a church while he was governor. However, he also expresses such respect for the intercession of the German ambassadors that he will no longer oppose the construction. The Armenians are so overjoyed to hear the news that they say they will name the building after the German ambassadors. I neglected to mention in the previous episode that Armenian Christians formed the majority population of Shimaki from the 16th century until the 18th century, but that a census taken in 1831 showed only 6,375 Armenian men compared to 62,934 Muslim men. And all the unassimilated Armenians were forcibly removed to Armenia during the Nagorno-Karabakh War of 1988-1994. I think it is safe to say that if there ever was a Brueggemann Crucius church in Shimaki, it isn't there now. A courier from Isfahan, whom the governor had sent even before the Germans left Nisive, arrives back in Shimaki on January 20. He carries a letter, but informs them that Shah Safi has provided no new orders concerning their journey, and that the governor's physician will translate the letter if they wish. It appears that Olares remembers, not fondly, that the physician mocked his Christian faith at the Riverside Ceremony, because he writes that the doctor is a person the fittest in the world to represent a fool in a play. The doctor kisses the letter, puts it to his forehead, and at last reads it. The message from the Shah is that the courier from Shimaki had been received at court and had told of the envoy from Moscow and the ambassadors from Germany. The Shah ordered the governor of Durban to receive them, to entertain them kindly, and to supply them with all things for the continuation of their journey as far as Shimaki. The governor of Shimaki was ordered to send a courier to the court with a full accounting of everyone in the German embassy and expect further orders on what to do next. The Germans, Olarius tells us, refused to list all the members of the expedition and their professions, instead providing information only about those with direct responsibility for Duke Frederick's trade mission. We had a great suspicion that the letter came not from the Shah's court, Olarius writes, and that there is more to the message than appears at face value. So they ask the courier to secretly come again the next day, whereupon they ply him with wine and gifts, which unlocked the man's breast and drew out the whole secret. He says, upon promise of secrecy, that the governor's brother had recently been executed by the Shah, and that the disgrace had so affected the whole family that no man would undertake the delivery of his letter to the Shah, 
without first knowing the contents of the message. Finally, after a month's delay, some brave soul took the message to Shah Safi, who sent the reply the physician had translated the day before. What the doctor apparently did not translate was that the letter included an express command to the governor of Shimaki to execute, by cutting into pieces, anyone who dared to insult or injure the Germans during their stay in Persia. The Germans are forced to spend another month waiting for additional orders from the Shah, which the governor is now sending to the court by express courier. On January 28, Russian envoy Alexei Savinovich Romanchukov, who had befriended Olarius in episode 7 and taken lessons in Latin mathematics and astronomy, leaves for Isfahan. He is visibly upset about some unspecified treatment received from the governor of Shimaki and his lieutenant, and Olarius tells us that he takes all the revenge he could on the guide assigned to escort him to Isfahan, using any occasion to affront and abuse him. In February, Olarius begins taking lessons in what he calls the Arabian tongue from one Mahab Ali, the mullah, or master, of a local mosque. He is a very young but mighty good-natured man and of excellent humor, Olarius tells us, one who did all that lay in his power to serve me, doing me the greatest kindnesses he could upon all occasions, especially in my study of the Arabian tongue. Another teacher named Imankuli, a captain in the governor's cavalry, joins the mullah, and the two of them teach Olarius on alternating days. In return, they receive lessons in German and learn the language quickly. But the situation does not sit well with a powerful someone, because rumors start circulating that the two Persian teachers are designing to change their religion from Islam to Christianity. The whisper campaign is dangerous, because apostasy is a capital offense under Islamic law, so they keep the ongoing lessons quiet, sometimes visiting at night. On February 11, a servant from the governor comes to Mullah Ali, asking how he dares to have Christians in his mosque, that they do not belong there, and that his best course of action is to cease and desist. Ali is startled at first, but takes the warning under advisement, and concludes that Muslims are never forbidden to entertain or converse with Christians and he begins to doubt that the warning was sent by the governor. Upon questioning the servant, Ali discovers that the interpreter assigned to the German embassy has participated in a trick, and that it was not the governor who had sent the warning, but Ambassador Brueggemann. The interpreter admits the scheme some days later, saying that Brueggemann wanted to prevent Olarius from taking language lessons. Brueggemann also gives his secretary some busy work to keep him from the lessons. As Olarius writes, upon the same account, the ambassador ordered me to reduce Persia and Turkey into one map, so that I might be taken off the study of the language, at least so long as I should be employed about that tedious and troublesome piece of work. During this time, Olarius also has a walking cane made for him, engraved with an Arabic phrase which the Persians put at the beginning of their writings. Translated, the phrase means, In the name of the merciful God who shows mercy, and it contains the name of Allah. He carries the cane on his walks about the city, 
and while visiting an Islamic school, one of the teachers says he would gladly give Olarius a much better cane in trade. Our intrepid secretary declines, and so the teacher cuts out a piece of clean paper, very gently and carefully, containing the word Allah, and says the name of God ought not to be written upon a walking stick, which is thrust into the dirt many times a day. Another day he visits a school in the part of town where the Germans are quartered to see how the Persians instruct their children. The students sit against the wall, while the master of the school sits in the middle of the room. Valerius is invited to sit down, and the mullah hands him a Quran to hold as the lesson proceeds. After a while, the teacher takes it back, kisses the cover, and asks Olarius to kiss it also. But I only kissed another book I had in my hand, he writes, and I told him that, knowing well what book I had myself, I made no difficulty to kiss it. But not understanding what was contained in his book, I should not be too forward to honor it so much. He laughed and told me I had done very well. He visits various schools and mosques on his walks in the city and sometimes carries with him a small celestial globe, which he has made himself. Teachers and students tell him that astrology and the mathematics must be taught better in Germany than Persia, for they are not acquainted with the invention of globes and make use only of the astrolabe for instruction. The globe is a hit, and everyone takes much delight in it, teaching Olarius all the signs of the zodiac in Arabic and telling him further that they know all the names and all the significations of most of the other stars. Among them is an Arab named Khalil, an astrologer born near Mecca and now about 65 years old. He reads Euclid, the ancient Greek mathematician known as the father of geometry, to his students, and Olarius demonstrates the globe to him, as well as he can with his limited command of the Persian language. Khalil, whom Olarius calls the Honest Arabian, brings out his astrolabe and asks if his new friend knows how to use it. The answer is, of course, that our secretary owns one himself, and Khalil asks him to go fetch it back to the school. He desired me to show him how I could set down the degrees so exactly, Olarius says, since he has no instruments with which to make circles and degrees. I showed him the invention of it and how in a short time and with little trouble he might learn it himself. Khalil is so much obliged that, while the Germans remain in town, he lets no opportunity pass to assure Olarius of his friendship, expressing it by frequent visits and by offering all the service that lay in his power. Here we must take a short detour into the future and have a peek inside the astounding and world-famous globe of Gottorp. An 11-foot diameter, water-powered mechanical sphere, weighing some three and a half tons, made for Duke Frederick of Holstein between 1651 and 1664, although different publications give different dates. The construction of this first-ever planetarium was done by one Andreas Bosch of Limburg and overseen by Adam Olarius. Turned by a water wheel, it could make one full circulation in 24 hours and consequently also serve as a clock. The Earth's continents and oceans were painted on the outside, while the interior featured celestial constellations and markings to indicate the horizon, both according to the most reliable sources of information, of course. 
Major catalogs of thousands of stars had already been published by Johannes Hevelius, an astronomer and also the mayor of Danzig, who made the first Atlas of the Moon, and John Flamsteed, the first astronomer royal of England, who made the first recorded observations of Uranus. Up to a dozen people could sit at a table inside, watching the stars rise and set as the globe turned. In 1714, the globe was either offered as a gift to Peter the Great or requisitioned by the Russian military. Either way, it was slowly transported to St. Petersburg, overland on huge rollers and sleighs, and also by ship, where it arrived on March 20, 1717, to be placed inside a building at the Tsar's old summer palace, formerly used to house elephants. It was moved to a new building at the Academy of Sciences on Vasiliev Island in 1726, and destroyed by a fire 21 years later. The globe's door, painted with the coat of arms of the House of Holstein Gottorp, was the only intact part of the original to survive. By 1751, the globe was fully restored by a Scotsman, identified by the Russians only as B. Scott, and several master Russian craftsmen. The interior was repainted, but it took several decades to finish the outside with the latest geographical discoveries and matching inscriptions in Russian. And so the great globe was in its fully restored glory when ten castaway sailors from Japan arrived in St. Petersburg in 1803. Japan was still secluded from most of the world in 1803, and the story of how the men arrived in Russia is astonishing. An early 19th century report by two of Japan's best scholars says a crew of 16 men left northeastern Japan in December 1793 on a transport ship full of rice. A storm carried the ship across the Pacific toward the Alaska Peninsula. Adrift for more than 165 days, they finally made landfall in the Aleutian Islands, then owned by Russia. They were taken to Irkutsk, the capital of Siberia, where they remained for eight years, when Russia decided to open commercial and diplomatic relations with Japan. Tsar Alexander I sent for the ten surviving Japanese men, and they arrived in St. Petersburg in 1803. At some point during the visit, they went to the Academy of Sciences and saw the globe of Gottorp. The Tsar put them on a ship in 1805 with Russia's first circumnavigator, Captain Krusenstern, who returned across the Atlantic via Cape Horn, then across the Pacific and the Sea of Okhotsk, and finally home to Nagasaki. Only four of the sailors made it home alive, but they did it by circling the globe. The Japanese scholars who interviewed the four sailors for the report said that extracting essential information from the silly and ignorant vulgar men was like the idle scratching of one's itching leg through the medium of a coarse shoe. But they eventually obtained a description of the globe. Housed in a two-story building, the door of the globe opened to a very spacious room inside, which felt to the men like being inside the body of a great Buddha. The men sat on a bench. Somewhere a certain screw was turned, and the room began to revolve. A platform outside and one story above provided a fine view of the world map. When rotated, the frontiers of different countries appeared. It is a matter of regret that all the details could not be ascertained, wrote the two Japanese scholars, but really there is no help for it in view of the uncivilized state and the thoughtlessness of the shipwrecked persons. After being requisitioned by the German military in 1942, moved to Schleswig and displayed in Lübeck after World War II, 
the bullet-riddled globe was returned to Russia in a state of near-total destruction. It has been restored twice more since 1947 and is still in St. Petersburg today. A modern replica was constructed in 2005 at the original location near Duke Frederick's castle in Holstein. In the next episode, Burning Fevers Infect the Germans, we find out how much one slave might cost, and the Persians deliver 60 wagons and 120 saddle nags for the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs>